Well, I am excited this morning to bring this message. I was at a conference, a pastor's conference in the fall, and I picked up this little book by a guy named Timothy Keller, who I read a lot about in the adult Sunday school class, just finished going through some of his curriculum. It's a little sermon that he preached over in uh, England that was just published. I mean, it's just a teeny little book. You read it in a half hour. That's about how long the sermon was. And uh, this sermon by Tim Keller blew me away. And I have been kind of hanging on to it, waiting for a good Sunday to bring it up and to be able to preach some of the things I have thought about from this book. And uh, today is that Sunday. The text comes from the book of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 3, kind of starting in the middle of a section, but it's important background information for what we're going to talk about in chapter 4. So let no one boast in men, Paul writes, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Paulos or Cephas, that's another name for Peter, or the world, or life, or death, or the presence, or the present, or the future, all are you yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Here's the important part. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And then, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul writes this letter to the Corinthian church. It's a church he started. Paul lived there for several years and then moved on, as Paul did his entire ministry. But after him came some other people, a man named Apollos. Peter had some impact there. Different leaders in the church had stepped up at different times. And there was some conflict going on in this church. Actually, a lot of conflict. A number of us in the fall studied through this book of 1 Corinthians. And they were doing some pretty crazy stuff. And trying to justify it as okay. Paul at the beginning of the letter here is trying to address the core of the conflict. And he uses the phrase puffed up. This phrase makes a lot of sense to us because we still to this day talk about someone who's arrogant having a big head. Have you heard that phrase before? It's the same phrase that Paul kind of uses here when he talks about being puffed up. Being bloated. Being full of air. They're arrogant. They're self-seeking. What they care about is the teachers that they had. And so there's bragging going on amongst them. And some of them are saying, well, I studied the words of Paul. I'm a follower of Paul. And somebody else is saying, well, I follow Apollos, who's better than Paul. 
I follow Peter. Even some people are saying, well, I follow Jesus above Paul and Peter. See, this division that they have among themselves, this comparing of one another, this arrogance that ends up putting everyone else down is not healthy. And the problem is, it doesn't just happen with who their leader is. When they start talking about worship, they get into the same kind of divisions. When they talk about sexual ethics, they get into the same kind of divisions. It's just a divisive situation. Why? Because they're so puffed up, Paul says. The old view, and it's been the view up until about 100 years ago, and still is the view around the world, is that the root of all sin is pride. That pride is what gets you in trouble when you get too puffed up. And what you need to do in order to take care of sin is to come down a level, to be deflated, to know your place, to be put in your place, to live your spot in the world. This has been the the common way of understanding sin for as long as we can tell. Except in the last hundred years, particularly since the 1960s, and you can probably understand that as we talk about it, Something else came up. In fact, we as particularly Americans and as Westerners have an opposite view of the root of all problems. The root of all problems for us is not pride. It's the opposite. What we talk about is self-esteem. That the reason people sin, the reason people get into problems is because they don't have enough self-esteem. We have psychologists who will try to say that you haven't been hugged enough and you weren't told you love, that you were loved as a child. That what you need to fix this sin problem is to be encouraged. Think about how pervasive that idea is. We tell our kids when somebody picks on them in school, they're a bully. They're a bully because they have a low view of themselves. And so they pick on other people to make themselves feel better. But did you know, if you actually talk to a lot of psychologists that do research in this, there's actually not a lot of evidence to suggest self-esteem is a real problem for people. And there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that if you give somebody more self-esteem that they end up living better in society. In fact, they tend to get more arrogant and be more self-privileged and end up being worse to others. This is a very pervasive idea. This has, this has infiltrated how we treat prisoners, how we relate to people who are in trouble, how we teach our kids, but the research is just simply not there. So either way, you have a problem. You have a problem that people get puffed up Or you can say people are not puffed up enough. But the problem is, either way, what you end up doing is having to compare yourself to everybody else. If the problem is pride, what you have to do is watch each other to make sure no one gets too proud. You have to keep a check between each other. If you focus on self-esteem, then you're setting your own standards, which seems to be a better idea. But the problem is, do you live up to your own standards? Most of the time, you don't live up to your own standards either. Or you set standards so low that you definitely can reach them. But in which case, that doesn't really help your self-esteem either, because you know you set low standards. It just doesn't seem to work. And the root of the problem is that we are constantly trying, Paul uses the word here, justify, or to find a verdict. We're constantly trying to figure out how we stand. Constantly trying to say, well, how do I feel about myself? Well, how does everybody else feel about me? And this drives us. This drives most of how we think about our lives. It drives most of our actions. 
Here's a quote from this book. It's actually by the musician Madonna. Now, Madonna is uh, very talented. Not Probably not a lot of big Madonna fans in here. But you have to admit that over a number of decades, she has done a lot of really great things and been a part of a lot of real creativity. She has set the stage in a number of decades for where music and where pop culture goes. Listen to how she describes her life. And I, and I don't think she's necessarily bad here. I think she's just realistically admitting what we all do. My drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. But then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will. I think Madonna understands what a lot of us go through. We keep pushing, wanting to be justified, wanting a verdict to say, yes, we are good enough. And we keep searching and searching. So how do we find it? Well, the old answer was, you find it by deflating. You find it by eliminating pride. So it's related a lot to other people. The new answer that we have today is this idea of self-esteem. What you do is set your own standards. You make your own verdict. But when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says something totally different. Something off the map that doesn't even really compute to us. Listen to his words in chapter 4. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. That word judged means to have a verdict. So it doesn't, make, it doesn't matter to me if you have a verdict on who I am or what I can do. Or by any human court. That makes sense to us, right? I mean, can we all just admit that we should care a lot less about what other people think of us than we do? That makes sense to us. But Paul goes even further. He says, in fact... I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. He says, I don't even judge myself. I mean, I don't see anything wrong with myself, but that doesn't mean I'm innocent. Paul is saying something amazing. He's saying, I, I don't have a very high opinion of your opinion of me. But I also don't have a very high opinion of my opinion of me. This is way off from old ways of understanding this with pride to modern ways of dealing with self-esteem. Paul is totally in another world. He says, I'm not going to even play the game of what you think of me or what I think of me because all that matters is that God justifies me. And so there, here's, here's the understanding. Paul's using a, a court term here. You're there in court before God and the prosecution presents the evidence and you know your life you know there's a bloody glove in your car stolen goods in your basement witness after witness can say what a terrible person you've been to them over the years the DNA evidence is mounting against you you don't even plead not guilty because you know deep down it's true and just before the verdict is about to come out and just before God is going to say you're guilty Someone in the back of the courtroom stands up and says, I object. And the whole courtroom turns and there's Jesus standing there, objecting 
to your guilt. But the court says, this person is a sinner. But Jesus says, I came to earth for them. They've hated. They've stolen. They've been cruel to other people. They've held on to bitterness. Jesus says, but I died for them. But they haven't changed. They're the same person they've always been. They don't get better. Jesus says, but I rose from the dead for that person to have life. And suddenly you're not found guilty, even though you should be. Not because of your actions, but because of Christ's actions on your behalf. How many of you can admit that you're never going to be perfect? Never going to be perfect? Put your hands down. Because you're wrong. When God looks at you, He doesn't see you anymore. He sees Jesus, which means He sees you as perfect, which means in God's court and in the court of life, that's how you stand. That's who you are. And and when you get that way, you can be so secure in the worth that you have that it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of you. It doesn't even matter that you have a low opinion of yourself because all that matters, all all that overshadows everything in your life is what God thinks of you. And as the hymn says, your hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is the ultimate expression of humility. Although Tim Keller doesn't like that word humility because we tend to wrap it up in this idea of self-esteem. He likes the term, and I think it's a great term, self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. I can just forget about myself. Forget about what I think of me. Forget about what you think of me. And instead of worrying anything about me, all I care about is who I am in Christ. See, if you, if you go on the pride model, it doesn't work because you've got to keep looking. If it's self-esteem, it doesn't work because you've got to keep searching for a verdict. But if you have a verdict in Christ, and that's what Easter is all about, that you have a verdict in Christ, and it is not guilty. It is perfect. It is a son and daughter of the Father. You cannot look at your life the same ever again. And your life should look like this self-forgetfulness. Doesn't this help you understand Paul a little bit more? I mean, isn't Paul a strange character? Sometimes he he holds himself up as an example. He even says at one point that he was a Jew among Jews. That among all the Jews, he was one of the best Jews that could be. He he was the best Jew at being Jewish that you could be. But you know what? He can also call himself the greatest sinner. He says, I am the greatest among the sinners. Not I was. He says, I am, present tense. Paul tells us that which he doesn't want to do, he does. And what he does want to do, he doesn't do. Paul can become all things to all people. He can write difficult and bold and in-your-face letters and yet say that he stands for love. He can have a faith under great persecution. See, Paul is an enigma to us because he doesn't add up. He won't fit in our categories of humility or self-esteem. But I think... That's where he should be. And I think that's where we should be too. Because when we have this identity in Christ, we can just live our lives. There's such freedom in that. Everybody listen to me. There's such freedom when you don't have to care what anybody else thinks about you anymore. There's such freedom that comes when you don't have to care what you think anymore. How many of you are your, greatest, you are your own greatest critic? What about just letting that be? 
Forgetting about it. Living a total freedom in Christ to live and to serve, to care about other people because you're not thinking about yourself. And to care about other people, not ultimately trying to think about you or get praise. But when the praise comes, when somebody wants to compliment you, you can accept that compliment. See, if you're worried about the pride thing, then you have to kind of brush off compliments. If you're worried about the self-esteem thing, then you have to brush off criticism. But if you're living in true self-forgetfulness, you can have the freedom to accept those things. You can be generous. You can drive a car that's a little bit older because you don't care what anybody else thinks of you and you'd rather save the money to do something else with it. You can go to work and work hard, not trying to protect yourself from having anybody else having a low opinion of you. Not trying to work so hard that you... How many of you have, can identify with this? You hold back and you don't work as hard because you don't want to set too high of a standard or bother any of the other people that you work with at work. Self-forgetfulness says just go for it. God put something in front of you to do. Don't worry about anybody else. Don't worry about saving face. Just go for it. Admitting your mistakes. Being okay with your flaws. Caring about people where they are. But also caring enough about them to walk with them into their future. Having deep relationships with people. Letting yourself be open and vulnerable because you don't ultimately care what they think. And you know that you are so secure in what Christ has done for you that their opinion doesn't really matter. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes a superb chapter on humility. And what he says at the end was, if, if you met a truly humble person, you would never walk away from meeting that humble person thinking, wow, that was a really humble person. That would make them a not humble person. What you would actually do if you met a humble person is you would walk away thinking, man, that person really cared about me. That person was really interested in me. I see self-forgetfulness so strongly in the life and work of Jesus who comes to work, forgets about himself and even dies on the cross. He eats with sinners, which is a way of saying that he accepts them. Because Jesus did all that, because Jesus exhibited self-forgetfulness in his own life, we are justified. That's the message of Easter. And now we can live in self-forgetfulness. That's where we're supposed to live. And so the question for you this morning, I got two questions for you. Number one, have you accepted the verdict? Verdict. I mean, you can go to church your whole life. You can be around this Christian thing your whole life and never really accept it as yours. Have you accepted what Christ has done for you? Sometimes we even accept Christ, but we don't want to accept his acceptance. We accept Christ, but we still want to hang on to the fact that we're broken. And that we're sinful and not move into a life of true self-forgetfulness. Sometimes even in our relationship with Christ, we're still selfish. And that leads me to my second question. If you're already a Christian and you have received that verdict already, do you find yourself still sucked back into the courtroom in life? You find yourself still at work, still with family, still with this group of friends, getting sucked back into this idea of trying to figure out where you stand do you continue to care too much what other people think of you or what you think of yourself? You are not alone. It is a daily struggle to live differently than the world. We all as Christians have to do it. Even the church at Corinth, we know because we have a second letter to Corinth that they did not do so well on this. That this continued to be a struggle for them. 
So what we do as Christians is we gather and we constantly remind ourselves that, of the verdict. That the courtroom is no longer in session, but that we are found perfect and blameless before God because of what Jesus did. We, we've already done it. Early in the service, we had an assurance of pardon and we passed the peace. What did we do? We, we, we asked for forgiveness for something we've already been forgiven for. Then Judy stood up here and reminded us that we're already forgiven for it. And then we shook each other's hands and passed peace. Why? To remind each other that we're already forgiven for it. Because it's so easy for us to get sucked back into the courtroom in life. We've been singing it in our hymns and our praise songs. I try to preach it in the gospel. I try to preach the gospel in, my, in every sermon that I get up here and do. This is why we're going to do communion in a little while. This is why we have Bible studies in Sunday school. This is why I encourage you to pray and to read your Bible throughout the week. Because we all need that reminder. It's so easy for us to try to look for our justification in other people or even in ourselves. But the message of Christianity is that the courtroom is already over. Jesus has paid the price. And the challenge for us is to live the freedom of self-forgetfulness. Pray that challenge sticks with you as it has with me. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your self-forgetfulness, that you humbled yourself for us. Forgive us that we let our own judgments about ourselves Forgive us that we let the judgments of other people get in the way of what you have sacrificed so much to give us. Forgive us. Give us your peace. Lord, we strongly desire that freedom. Help us. Amen. Hymn is number 776. Let us break bread together. Mm-hmm.